with the question. It's a question. I am well, thank you. <laughs> Strong as a slightly medicated oxen. I, uh, I've been looking forward to speaking with you. I'm glad that I I'm sorry that we didn't get a chance to chat. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to chat. It's been quite mad uh, over the yeah. last uh, month or two, as you can imagine. I can imagine, yeah. You okay? Yeah, actually, um, yesterday I was <laughs> sitting in the bath, right? Okay, we haven't started the show yet, right? Okay, so I was sitting in the bath yesterday, and I'm still, like, washing my scalp, right? Because, you know, and I was, I had, I, unfortunately, I, I ran a really hot bath. I was sitting in the bath, and I had washed my, my scalp, and I was like, oh, I'm too tired to rinse it. I <laughs> just lying in the bath thinking, do not fall asleep in the bath. That would be a very bad way to go. <laughs> to go. <laughs> Oh, God. Not to do a bath in some Jim Morrison scenario. So anyway, I just had to run some cold water over my head. <laughs> Other than that, yesterday was a low energy day. But for the most part, it's been, it's been mostly fine. I mean, I had a good workout tonight, and um, it's been mostly fine. What's your, uh, what's your prognosis? Very positive. Um, if all goes well, um, uh, only a 1% to 2% chance of recurrence once everything is squared away, right? So I've got one more round of chemo. I've done three. I've got one more round to go in early July and then um, maybe two week, two and a half weeks of, like it's about three weeks and a bit of radiation therapy and that's it. And then they just, you know, a little bit of monitoring here and there, but the prognosis is positive. You know, they found a lump here, which they removed and that had some lymphoma cells, but they've done a full body scan and nothing else has been found in my body. So it doesn't look like it's spread anywhere. So this is mostly just a precaution and, you know, for the sheer fun of it. Good. Okay, good. Have you, have you considered, just as a, out of curiosity, have you considered alternative treatments or looked into uh, integrative treatments? Yeah, I mean, I certainly was, um, you know, certainly curious about them for sure. Uh, the numbers seem to be fairly inescapable. Um, you know, they, my surgeon, oh, sorry, my doctor has this little app on her phone that you put in all the variables and it will actually tell you down to a fairly specific degree of detail, the chance of recurrence based upon certain protocols. So we did work the numbers as hard as we could. Now, maybe those numbers are all made up. I don't know. And I don't even know if I'm sick, right? A, there was, you know, one lump which was removed, but they don't know if it's, they couldn't find anything anywhere else. But the problem is, of course, if I do have cancer cells anywhere else in my body, you really can't wait for them to grow and then treat them, right? So this, you mm -hmm. know, because they have to be a couple of hundred million to be visible on any kind of scan. And of course, you don't want them going into the bone marrow or anything like that. Otherwise, you have some serious problems. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it did seem to be the way to go. The, the numbers and the science behind it seems fairly certain. And there's a slightly increased risk of chance sort of later on in life because of what I'm doing now of contracting something. But there's a lot I could do to mitigate that. Um, of course, exercise and eating right. well and keeping low stress, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I certainly did look into it. Proactive. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, course, I, you, course, you just so. want to be proactive uh, with it. The reason I'm asking is I, I actually don't know if I've ever had this conversation with you. Um, for the last 10 years, my, my husband, what he does for a living is he runs an alternative health website. And it's been, it's actually, we're celebrating our 10 year anniversary this year of running the business. Um, and it was started because of corrections that he made to his health. And you already know my story. Um, so. Yes. There has been we've we've just met so many people uh, and at various stages of of different kinds of cancer and other diseases, uh, MS and a lot of other 
uh, diabetes, ver various stages of, of diabetes and so on that have found success in alternative treatments, sometimes during, sometimes after. Uh, you know, they'll right. have the chemo and the, the uh, radiation and then they'll, they'll take some steps afterwards. So the more people we met that have had success, the, the better, the more the, the business grew. And, I, you know, I don't mean to say that we're capitalizing on that, but we're, he got into this business because he wanted to do something more positive. He was in the film business and he tried these treatments himself um, and it worked for him. So he actually left the film business and a, a lucrative career in the film business to do this because he felt that it was a better direction. So I wanted to right. just, I don't like to like just push information on people. I want to ask them if they're oh, open sure. to it first. So that's why I was asking. I mean, of course you have to go the route that you're going, but as you move forward, there's so much information that can help you be proactive and prevent issues in the future. And I'd like to offer you that information if you're open to it. Oh, absolutely. I am, uh, you know, I'm a reason and evidence-based guy. So if right. there's stuff out that's validated, and I certainly do understand that for things like uh, diabetes, I mean, as long as it's not too far advanced, there's a massive amount. Since it's, di since it's diet and exercise-based ailment, uh, yeah. then um, there's a huge amount that you can do that would not involve just daily shots of insulin, but a huge amount of proactive stuff you can do with a whole bunch of different uh, yeah. ailments. A and I certainly, stuff. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and of course, I don't view, well, I just do chemo and then resume life's normal activities as if nothing had ever happened. I mean, you can't unring that bell in your head, right? So yeah. I do view having a different relationship. I mean, I've been pretty healthy. I mean, I've been ridiculously healthy my whole life. Like, I've never spent a night in a hospital. I've never broken a bone. I've never taken any medication other than some couple of antibiotics a couple of times uh, a decade. So I've had really great health, and I, you know, I took some pride in that um, because I eat really well, I exercise uh, all the time and, and try to keep stress at manageable levels. But uh, So this was a real, uh, a real surprise and yeah. so ridiculously unnecessary because it was untreated for a year before I finally went to the States and got it dealt with proactively. The system up here was just as bad as you could imagine when it came to dealing with this. My dentist found it like last March yeah. and uh, finally in April I ended up going to the States after I was told it would still be months to get it dealt with in Canada after almost a year, no, over a year. Um, so it, you know, if it had been dealt with last March, I'm sure I wouldn't need to go through any of this, but the reality is it wasn't. And so, uh, it did metastasize into something more dangerous than just some lump. And so, um, you know, I think one of the most important things is for me, the most proactive health thing I can do is anytime there's any health issue in the future, just go straight to the United States to people I know <laughs> and respect there and not get caught into this God awful quagmire of communism. We call a socialist health care system up here. Uh, so that's one of the big lessons that I, I got out of it. But because I've never really dealt with the healthcare system here before because I've been so healthy. Yeah. Um, and because I was told, oh, it's benign. Don't worry about it. It's, you know, we'll, we'll take it out and all that. And um, it turned out that it wasn't. Uh, so, you know, yeah. So I'm definitely, uh, but the, the, the treatment outcomes in the U.S. or ca Canada are about the same according to the statistics that I've looked at. So this does seem to be the best protocol. It's relatively new, uh, this way of dealing this uh, prednisone, this way of dealing with this blood-borne cancerous. But I do look at this as, you know, when this is all said and done, that this is just the beginning of an even more revolutionary approach to being proactive about health. Because, you know, it only takes one near miss for you to suddenly start looking for the sniper flashes, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, you have such a, a great attitude about the whole thing, and I, I admire you for that. So I'm sure that you're going to do just fine, and we're going we're, we're to have to listen to you rant about anarchy for a very, very long time. <laughs> like it time. or not. <laughs> well, that's the weird thing. That's you know, I, news, I resolutely though. did... Yeah, you know, I resolutely did not want to preempt 
what it could be in my own mind. Because, of course, you know, you get some news like that and you just immediately, you know, I've got a young kid, I love my wife, I've got a great life. And, you know, I didn't want, I mean, according to the research I've done, this, this is not, this is genetic, this is not something that is stress-based or anything like that. Uh, and according to control, the, right? Yeah, some things, you know, just, sorry, bad luck, right? But, um, but what I was concerned about is that stress obviously has a huge effect on health. So I was really wanted to interrupt the death spiral. You know, which may even literally be a death spiral when you get bad news and you say, oh, shit, that's terrible. You know, this is just the worst thing ever. And then you, you hang your head in your hands. And then what happens is you get that that actually provokes more bad news because your body is like, oh, Christ, now we're really freaking out. Oh, my God, this is even worse. And you get cortisol and adrenaline and you burn out your, your, um, your various glands and all that. And your thyroid goes in hyperactive. And then you get more bad news and you freak out even more. And I just I really wanted to not have that process occur with this. So um, I really wanted to try to not preemptively view it as a bad thing. And through that process, I mean, some really great stuff has come out of it. I haven't been this relaxed in years, which is just fantastic. Good. Excellent. Excellent. It sounds like you're doing everything that needs to be done. Um, Of course, we're unofficial. If you're recording and you want to use any of this, that's fine. I mean, but oh, yeah. do you do you mind? I, I mean, I, I, we could officially start at some time if you want to do an intro for your purposes or, you know, we no, can no. just I'll, uh, I'll let you. Uh, Usually we just have conversations and we're good. But can yeah. I can yeah. I ask you in any official capacity for the sake of my audience, may I ask you about your health? Like I just did now, but we can piece this together. And just briefly, though, when I do an introduction, um, and can sure. I publish that information? You certainly can. I, um, okay. uh, I can't hide it. Look. <laughs> well, you know what? People do that as fashion statements. So yeah, but then I would have to admit being interested in fashion. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's I, true. I'd rather admit to health problems than fashion. Well, problems. every every but you know everyone everyone knows and everyone's pulling for you. So I just okay. want to be okay. able to uh, address that and not seem like I'm ignoring it. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. No, well, I'll, I'll I'm let ready. You take I'm it ready away. when you are. Right. Okay. Uh, the only other thing is, I'm you're recording video. I'm not recording video. So I yes. would like to use the video. So once you have it all set. Can you just send me a link and then I'll post the video on my site as well? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Let me go ahead and just start recording my audio. You okay? Are you trying no, to No, I was just checking if there was any. I feel, I feel, no, I feel, I'm looking at myself. Actually, I feel like a, a giant thumb with eyeballs. I was just looking <laughs> if you could actually tell the difference at the moment. <laughs> so I'm I should, like, I should actually just draw a little, little eyes and a mouth here and just do the show like, hello, I'm Savannah <laughs> Mullen, you're from Freedom Mode Radio. How are you doing? <laughs> Look, I have a nail on the back of my head. That can't be good. Anyway, sorry, go on. That's okay. I wish I, you know, we got to keep that part in. That was really funny. <laughs> All right. All right. I got to I gotta start recording on my end. That would be good, right? You think that would help? We could All right. I'm, I'm recording sounds. I'm not recording videos. So I'm just going to ask you to send me the video when you have it, and I'll go ahead and publish that. It's it's never it's never well lit on my end. I just don't have the studio equipment that I need, but it's because it's not full time yet. But we're getting there. All right, I'm gonna go ahead and do an intro and just start, okay? Yep. Well, hello 
everyone. This is Laura at Lynn Unplugged Mom, and I am actually recording video today with Stefan Molyneux, and I've been looking forward to talking to Stefan again, because every time I talk to Stefan, it's always a great time, and I know that you guys have been looking forward to hearing the conversation, so this one is available as podcast and video. How do you like that? I always shy away from video, but certain people, I do it, and Stefan, I don't know. You just break me out of my shell, so welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here with us. Thank you, and and I really um, I, we haven't done video in a while, and really wanted to compliment you on your hairstyle. I feel that if we sort of combined our heads, divided by two, we'd end up with a normal head of hair. Uh, so I, I really feel, I, cut, I feel I like I'm subtracting. Oh, did you? I, you too, yeah, actually. I did. I, I cut. I cut. <laughs> well, <laughs> I cut about um, eight inches off. I you know. Yeah, just, with my hair, my hair was basically saying to me, uh, I, "I quit," you know, because I'm yeah. taking these meds right for cancer. So I'm like, "You can't." You can't quit. You're fired. <laughs> but anyway, mildly proactive. Well, you know what? People let's, are like, what? Let's go ahead and, and yeah, hear ahead. about that. And most everyone knows that you've had this like really, really drastic news. It's like life changing. It's life altering. So how are you? How are you doing? You seem to be doing okay, actually. And, and that's it's really very inspiring. Well, thank you. Um, I am. Um, I'm. I'm well. I mean, and I'm well. I've just I've done three rounds of chemo, and um, I have one more round to go in a couple of weeks, and then I do a little bit of radiation, and then I'm done. And the prognosis is very positive. Uh, you know, if you're going to get the big C, this is the one that you want to get. Um, the recurrence rate after these two rounds of treatment is 1% to 2%, and that includes people who are idiots. So hopefully I won't be in the category of health idiot after that and can get that down close to, uh, to zero. Like, I mean, you know, so it, it comes back in 1% to 2% of people who – you know, smoke and snort yeah. crack and, you know, <laughs> whatever, have unprotected sex with space aliens. I don't know. Do people snort but crack? So I, Does that uh, happen? Is I that must confess thing? to, I probably am not showing a lot of street cred by mixing ridiculously <laughs> unknowledgeable things about drugs. The space alien thing, though, I can tell you is fantastic. But um, yeah, yeah, because they, actually, they, now think, they now think that I'm one of theirs, right? Because I have a white background now, a bald head, so people just assume that I'm from the future. So um, buy gold. But uh, no, health is, uh, health is good. It's been relatively – the third round has knocked me a little flatter than the previous two. And I really have to be careful about infections because, of course, your white blood cells go through the floor. Uh, and as your red blood cell count diminishes just during the chemo treatment because it's attacking all fast-growing cells, including those which produce my three remaining chest hairs. Um, but it's not uh, – you just get a little more tired because, of course, your red blood cells are the ones that carry all your oxygen around for – thinking and stuff. Uh, so I'm just kidding. But uh, it's, um, it's, so it's not, it's not too bad. I mean, I'm not, I was talking to someone the other day whose, whose husband is going, he's gone through a year of chemo and it's just wretched for him. He goes to bed at eight o'clock at night. He can, can't barely function. It's going to take him a year to recover. You know, by, you know, September, October, I should be back to normal and uh, with, you know, hopefully some deep and richer wisdom about the fragility of life and the need to live you know, vivaciously and courageously and make sure that you tell everyone that you love, that you love them and all of those good things. So it is a significant interruption in the progressed flow uh, of my life or the planned flow of my life. But I will not say, I can't say much though I want to, that it is altogether unwelcome. Uh, it has been, you know, boy, you really find out who your friends are and you really find out people who were just, you know, full of talk and, you know, hey, sorry, you're sick. Uh, give me a shout when you can get better kind of thing. So, uh, it's, it has been a really, you know, the relationships that are rich have gotten richer. The relationships that were obviously not that rich have gotten less consequential, so to speak. And uh, I feel 
more relaxed, more focused. I feel more mentally sharp than I have uh, in in some time. And I, you know, I don't exactly bring the dullest knife to the cutting board to begin with, but I feel um, more courageous. I feel more resolute in what it is that I want to do with my life and the effect that I want to have on the world. So, you know, I mean, it's it's a lot of mayo to put on a shit sandwich is what I'm saying. You can still taste the shit, but the mayo helps a lot. That's really, yeah, <laughs> that's my approach to it. Well, you know, a lot of people say, and this happens with age too, not necessarily just with uh, disease, but just with age, you start to get to a point where you acknowledge your mortality. And not that people don't know that. We all, from the time we're bar- born, we all know that we're going to die. We, as, as children, we start to learn about death and we start to realize that it's inevitable. We're all going to die. How and when is up for question, and some people fear it, some people don't, and that's how religions are born, right, out of the fear of death. But there is, there does come a time in life where you're not a teenager anymore, and you're not in your early 20s, and you don't have this, like, uh, idea that, well, yeah, death is going to happen someday when I'm 250 years old, but it might actually happen sooner than I think, and life just becomes different. Your perspective becomes different. And I know that as I'm getting older, I'm I'm starting to see things a little bit differently. I I have acknowledged my mortality. I still don't think it's going to happen before I'm 250. I'm not that old yet. (laughs) But I have heard people talk about uh, when these life-altering things happen to them, it's it's almost like a punch in the face, like okay, this is your mortality. But then there's a sense of peace that comes with it as well, realizing that it's, it's, it just is what it is and let's just deal with it and move forward. And it sounds like you've really embraced that sense of peace and you're, you're happy, you're fine, you're moving on with your work, uh, but at the same time, you're also realizing that every moment is precious. So I, I, I just, I'm very inspired by how you're handling it and how you're moving forward. I know when things have happened to me in my life, I've kept them very private. I've been very, uh, very almost very personal about it, very afraid to talk about it in public. And you're, you just let the public know, you let your following know, and you said, hey, this is what's going on with me. This is how I'm going to deal with it. This is how I'm proceeding. And uh, you appreciated the support that everybody was offering you. And you got this just great positive attitude. And I really, that, what, what could be, what could be a better medicine than your attitude right now? So I'm really happy well, to hear that. I tell you, you know, this is this is the great secret, Lorette. I mean, I, I'm going to whisper this because it's such a shocking secret to me. Cancer kills worry cells. It does. It really, really kills worry cells. Because all the stuff, like I look back and say, oh, you know, things, and I'm not a particularly high-stress person, but all the... Is all it like, is it like just about, a sense of like, well, F it now, you know? Oh, yeah, you know, like, um, I mean, gosh, what was I worried about last year? Um, what's I going to do with this? You can't even speech? remember. Uh, is... <laughs> Is my, uh, you know, how's the show? Is the show going to grow? Uh, am I going to do a good interview? And it's just like, uh, you know, I, you know, what would you not, like now with this diagnosis, what would I not give to have the problems I had last year? You know, but last year it felt like the problems sometimes were a problem. And so there is this weird perspective, you know, like in those movies, uh, sometimes when they don't know how to end the movie, they'll just pan out and you're sort of half expected to keep panning. You know, like when I was a kid and I first learned about astronomy, you'd write down your address, you know, like I remember writing, oh, I'm at Dean Close uh, Boarding School uh, in Cheltenham in in whatever county it was in in England, in the world, in the solar system, in the Milky Way, in the, you know, you pan all the way out. But this is what happens when you get a diagnosis. So you say, you know, when you become aware of your mortality, it's like... Yeah, you kind of become aware of your mortality when you face a diagnosis that, that is 
you know, obviously potentially life-threatening. And it just zooms you right out. And, but not in a way that detaches you. You know, okay, I've never wanted to be that kind of, uh, I am indifferent as to the success or failure of my cellular structures. Yeah, I want to be that, you know, I'm, the Socrates said, you know, either, either death is like the best night's sleep that you ever had is the night where you didn't wake up and you didn't dream, right? So death mm-hmm. could be, if there's nothing, then death is like the best night's sleep that you ever had that never ends. And who wouldn't want that? Or death is where you get to go to, to be with all the great people throughout history and have great conversations, uh, finally get to sing my duet with Freddie Mercury, as I've always dreamed and as he kept resisting uh, in his life, that rat bastard. But um, <laughs> there is, there is uh, I, I didn't want to be that detached about it or that analytical about it because nobody um, who's sane wants to die. Uh, and of course, particularly a four-year-old daughter and a wife that I love to death and a life that is just incredible uh, and, you know, great friends and great community and so on. So I would, didn't want to be indifferent to that. So I wanted to have perspective without detachment, if that makes any kind of sense. And yeah, that so- is a real challenge. Yeah, that is, that is the real challenge for me. That's been sort of the wire, the wire that I'm sort of walking. Uh, and, um, uh, but of course, our bodies know uh, a, a lot that we don't know. I mean, I, I remember puberty coming as quite a surprise. It's like, hey, what's happening with my naughty bits? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> what's this stuff doing in the drain? Uh, Ooh, and hey, so like our that. bodies, yeah. <laughs> so our bodies know a whole bunch of things that we don't. I assume that my body knows how to get well. And I'm also not resistant to the idea that this kind of illness could be my body's attempt to heal me of inconsequential worries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, averse to that. I know it sounds a little weird, but I'm not averse to the idea that this could be a healing, a very large healing event uh, in, in my life. And so far, uh, it really has felt that way. You know, let's, let's go there for a minute. Let's use this as a little bit of a segue because this is really reminding me of a, a cathartic experience that I, I had last summer. And you know, I'm, I'm always very involved in politics and I, I don't mean that I'm going to be a politician or, and you know, you and I have had this conversation before on whether or not to be uh, voting or running for office or whether to wash your hands of it. But we agreed that it's important to at least know what's going on and be aware of it. And there are times, and you know, I, I do realize that it may be different. I do handle things differently as a female, and I'm okay with that. I think we're supposed to. There's that balance of male and female. And, of course, as a mother, my mother's perspective and some other things that were going on in my life last summer, and there was just this big cathartic experience, and so many things went through my mind, and, and one of them was, what the hell is the difference? And I kept uh, thinking over and over again, we're going to die anyway, anyway. I mean, whether we are libertarian or Republican or Democrat or whether we're for universal health care or we're for an immigration or whether we, we run for office or if this one gets elected or that one gets elected, at the end of the day, we're all dying anyway. And we don't take anything with us and we're not taking our, our cars or our house or anything. And then, you know, the other perspective is, well, we're leaving a legacy for our children. And then, of course, I, I go into this crazy land. I go off into silly land. and I think, well, they're going to die, too. So what's the difference? You know, and the whole what is the <laughs> right. purpose of life thing? So there's that there's that uh, need to find perspective and be able to, like, pan out, as you said, and realize, you know, we are just a blip. We are just a, a, a grain of sand or, or a rippling wave. And, and then it's gone. And, you know, reincarnation or not or, or heaven or hell or not, it really doesn't matter because it is what it is no matter what it is, no matter what we make up about it or not. But to have that perspective without 
becoming completely detached is a little bit of a challenge because then you do end up going off into crazy land and you just think, well, what the hell's the difference? Why am I even here? But at the same time, you have to remind yourself, but I am here and there is something to do while I'm here. So my life does matter. So there is a balance to be had there. And I would imagine that it, it, that, that contrast really hits you in the face when you do have to face something as extraordinary as you're going through, but it does happen to all of us. So while we're on that, how do you, doing what you do and the work that you do is very philosophical in nature, but it's also highly politically charged. And there are, you have a, a huge audience that weighs the whole libertarian perspective, freedom perspective. It's all about changing the world for the better and you know, reaching some kind of uh, betterment for humanity. And a lot of it does have to do with either political action or inaction. So now you're in this position and it, it must be tempting for you to say, F it, what the hell does it matter? You know, because you're you're in that like yeah. you know in that like yeah. place. So it really gets to that deep philosophical place that I think all of us as human beings experience at some point in our lives. Right. Does it make you sense? You know, I don't know if you. Yeah, I, 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 it really does. And I don't know if you remember this when you were a kid, when you first learned that the sun was going to go out, like in I don't know what is it, ten billion years or something like that. Yeah. And I, I, I can't remember, I think I was six or seven when I first learned about it. I was really into astronomy. I, I mapped sunspots with a telescope when I was a kid. I loved astronomy. I just took a while. My daughter couldn't sleep last night, so we went out for a walk at around 11.30 at night, and I showed her the moon as I was explaining all this stuff. I just love that stuff. But I remember when I was a little kid learning that the sun was going to go out. And I remember very distinctly thinking, so, so this math test on Friday, <laughs> What's what does it matter? You know, so the sun's going to go out. We're all going to be a cold cinder of nothing floating through space. Nothing's going to, you know, continue and all that. What's the point? But then a day or two, I was like not studying for my math test. And because and I was like, what's the point, right? And yet a day or two later, I was eating a, a chocolate bar called Curly Whirly. It's a, if you've never tried it, boy, find some British style tuck shop and pick one up. They're really good. Or at least they were. Well, I, I've, I've had, had Toblerone. I like that. Toblerone is good. A flake is also good. But man, you just dig that out of your khaki pants for the next 10 years. But, um, but what happened was I was enjoying my candy bar. And I remember thinking very clearly to myself, I was six or seven years old, I remember thinking, well, I'm not not enjoying the candy bar because the sun is going to go out. Like, I don't want to study for my math test because I don't want to study for my math test. And so the stuff that I don't want to do based upon the mortality of the solar system. I didn't even really know about my own personal mortality, but I guess that counted, right? Cause, and so I remember thinking, well, I don't want to study for my math test, but I'm not saying, well, why bother even eating a chocolate bar because the sun's going to go out in 10 billion years? And that to me was a pretty important thing. And I thought about that when I got this diagnosis again because I thought there's something really efficient about mortality which is don't screw around with your time. You know, it is a finite resources. There are not an infinite number of grains of sand in the hourglass. And sometimes we get reminded that there may be a big ass crack in the hourglass that we weren't expecting, right? Like some diagnosis that's scary or, I mean, James Gandolfini just on vacation today, the star of The Sopranos, just on vacation today out in Italy, drops dead of a massive heart attack or something. I mean, you don't, you don't know. 51 years old. Now, okay, he wasn't exactly, uh, you know, competing for ab work with Brad Pitt, but, you know, lots it's of people still, live it's less still, healthy. Yeah, it's still, yeah, it's rattling. It was, it was jarring. I just yeah. found out a, a, an hour ago, as a matter of fact, and it was jarring to me. I've met him several times, and, uh, you know, it just, Sopranos, I, I, 
Well, yeah, I worked in I worked in New York and I was a hobnobber, I guess. <laughs> well, so, well, I, I appreciate you taking a little time for little old me. <laughs> wow. No, <laughs> so so for me, like so for so. me, it's like okay, so, and I hate to put it this way because it sounds stupid, but for me, the mortality thing is less math tests, more chocolate, yeah. right? So so the stuff that you take pleasure in is the stuff that's really, really important. And assuming it's not stupid pleasure, like in somewhat reasonable pleasure, you know, like, I mean, good conversations, a nice glass of wine, a great meal, whatever, it's good sex, whatever it's going to be that's going to be uh, something that's enriching, a great book, or wh- whatever it's going to be. For me, you know, having this conversation tonight is, is definitely part of that equation. So if you're going to have a great conversation or something that's going to enrich you, then it doesn't matter that the sun is going to go out in 10 billion years. But if you're going to spend your time studying to be an accountant when you don't really want to be an accountant, but you just feel it's like the right thing to do or the responsible thing to do, or you're living somebody else's dreams, or you're, you know, like, um, what was it, Andre Agassi wrote a whole book recently about how he hated playing tennis for most of his life, and what did he spend most of his life doing was playing tennis and holding on to his toupee out there. I mean, so that, I think, is something that's really important, which that the, 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 the rational hedonism of life is really important to, uh, to remember uh, when you're faced with mortality, that... Uh, you don't uh, spend less time if you can doing things that aren't enriching and meaningful and really focus. Like, you know, those relationships that are just kind of habitual but don't really go anywhere or, you know, that book you're kind of half interested in reading or that movie that's kind of okay or whatever it is. Uh, well, you know, for me, cut that shit out. You know, like, I mean, really, really focus on the quality uh, because the quantity is not, not for certain. Yeah. Well, not only is the quantity not for certain, but even if it was some some semi-certain and you can guess, well, I'm going to live for X amount of years, it's still really not that long when you think about it, when you put it into perspective. And I think we realize that more when we become parents and we see just how fast our children grow. And we look at them and we say, wow, you got big. And then we look at their baby pictures and it's it's just, it's jarring. And it's like just bittersweet moments to say, hey, I, I love the 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 young lady or the, the young man that you're becoming. But my gosh, it feels like just yesterday that I was giving birth to you. And does that mean I'm 10 years older too? And how did that happen? And I've been experiencing that myself. My 40th birthday is coming up and I keep telling everybody, I don't understand this because I thought I was supposed to be like, I don't know, mature or something when I turned 40. And I just don't feel like an adult, but yet here I am in the no, middle yeah. of adulthood. And I'm not, I don't the feel great thing, up The great thing about getting older... <laughs> Yeah, the great thing about getting older, though, Lorette, is you realize just how little of your personality <laughs> changes that much. You know, yeah. it's pretty much this. I mean, I sort of looked. I was looking I'm at 16. some. Uh, my daughter wanted to. My, my daughter likes playing with the younger version of me. She calls little Steph, which is me as a little boy, and I wanted to show her some pictures, so I did. And I'm like, I, I look the same one now. I mean, but I mean, same, I mean, same, pretty much the same personality is one of these things. I mean, you can move it a little bit if you really get behind it and push. And you know, some of that stuff can be good, but. There's a kind of intractability to personality that I think is, is kind of important. And around middle age, too, you know, I think Dustin Hoffman said when he got into his 50s, he realized, you know, I can't double my age and still be alive. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, when you realize you're on that, you know, that tipping point, you're over the middle part, right? So I'm 46, you know, maybe I'll get to 92. Um, you know, maybe, maybe some amazing technology will come. But, you know, I'm not counting on it. And the other thing that happens, of course, as you know, with kids is, I don't know if this happens to other parents, but... I mean, I thought of this pretty soon after my daughter was born, you know, looking at her saying, well, the only reason you're here is because I need to be replaced, right? The only reason you get an entrance is because I get an exit. And that's the whole point of having kids is the only reason you're so young and fresh is because I'm getting old and creaky. 
And that is something that's kind of impossible to, to recognize. It's impossible to miss that you're, you're basically training your replacement. It's a, it's a part of ourselves that goes on. And, you know, speaking of that, training or replacement, that is something that's, that's I think, inevitable for parenthood and unavoidable. And let's, let's explore that a little bit. I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I did want, not that you brought it up, it was kind of inadvertent, but thank you because you always provide me with the perfect segue. And I did want to explore that a little bit. There, there are a lot of people out there that are talking about parenting. And this is not new. It's been going on since the beginning of time, probably. But I, I guess the invention of media and radio and television and everybody writing books and everybody jumps on the parenting bandwagon. And it's not easy for a new parent to enter this uh, pop culture, uh, media f fanatic culture and just say, okay, well, I'm new to this, what do I do? Now, it's perfectly natural for someone to become a parent and say, holy crap, I just brought a human being to the world and I don't know if I'm going to do this right. But that's Because that's just how it is. We're, we're eternal children and there's no point in our lives where we say, I've got this, I know what I'm doing, I'm ready to have a child and I'm going to do everything perfectly because we're not. We're going to mess it up and we're just going to make mistakes and we're not going to know what's a mistake and what's not a mistake. So it's natural for us to look for advice and I notice that what's happening is we are more detached from each other as human beings and instead of going to our mother or our sister or a community for advice, we're going to people that are far away that don't really know us very well and we're trusting them to tell us what to do and if we don't do what they said to do we think we're doing it wrong or if we do exactly what they said to do and things don't turn out wonderfully we think that we've failed somehow and some in some cases they tell us that well you're just not doing it right or you're not good enough or whatever and we're really messing ourselves up so something has gone awry in society. There's definitely some kind of parenting gone wrong. I know that the whole uh, spanking culture, that's not something that's new. That didn't just We didn't just invent that in the 1980s or 1990s. This is something that's happened since, again, since the beginning of humanity. And now we're trying to address that and say, hey, you know, this whole violent thing, not working. Let's deal with this somehow. But there is a lot of conflicting information. Now, I'm asking you because you, I know that you've only been a parent for four years, I believe. Izzy's four, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, you learn as you go. And I've been a parent for almost 12 years now. I have three children and I'm still learning as I go. I think my mother is still learning learning as she goes and you know, she has a 39-year-old daughter. So there's there's always something that we have to learn and something that we're, we're going to mess up. What have you learned, though, in your work? Because you talk about politics, you talk about society, you talk about culture, philosophy, but a lot of the emphasis is on parenting. And of course, you do put a lot of em uh, emphasis on advocating for nonviolent parenting, which is great. And the world really does need more of that. So I applaud that. But what have you learned? And if you can apply what you've learned to your perspectives and how your perspectives has changed, one, as your daughter has gotten, gotten older, uh, two, as you've in, um, experienced this this experience that you're going through now with cancer, and and you look at your relationship with her, how how has that changed? How has her getting older changed your perspective on parenting? And of course, we all believe that nonviolent parenting is is definitely healthier, but something deeper than that. Like as far as your mm -hmm. dynamic with her and just the whole culture of I don't know what to do. I I, I don't know if I'm doing this right. Has anything occurred to you with the whole experience or, or just through the work that you've done over the last couple of years? How has this changed you? 
Yeah, I mean, are, that's, are you a, a perfect question. parent now? Do you know what you're doing now? <laughs> well, I, you know, when it comes to humanity, I think that perfection, you know, perfection is for math. You know, perfection is is for logic. I don't know that perfection is something that can ever apply to human beings. Um, so I would certainly not claim to be a perfect parent. But, and also, even if you were a perfect parent, according to all principles, your children still have to somehow make it in a society that is less than perfect. So are you not training them to be, to be hey, look, I made the first round child in a world full of square pegs, or square holes. So, um, but I think what I've learned, well, first of all, I'm glad that I wasn't completely wrong. You know, that's, that's been a huge relief because, I mean, I was lecturing people about parenting long before I became a parent. And so I'm glad that I didn't end up saying, well, you know what? Turns out you have to hit them. You know, I'm really <laughs> oh, glad gosh. that I would have had to like apologize to so many people for being such an insufferable doofus. You know, I mean, I may have to do that anyway, probably do. But, but I, I, you know, I, I'm just so glad that, that it didn't blow up in my face, you know, like, oh, sorry, I had to take you to emerge because it turns out if you don't spank them, they do reach for the hot plate on the stuff. Anyway, so I'm glad that um, I'm glad that that sort of peaceful and respectful thing really uh, has worked out. And so from that standpoint, I'm very grateful that I'm very grateful that the theory matches the practice. Um, and I, I'm very, very happy about that. Um, so that's the first. But the thing that I've, I think is really tricky is that for me, at least the transition now is that in the beginning, it was really all about you know, I mean, she was immobile. I mean, of course, you know, right? Kid babies are immobile. They can't do anything. So you're there to entertain them. And you don't sort of sit there and say, well, I'm bored of going ooga, booga, booga. So, you know, you just do it until they want to do something else or whatever. But now um, when she, uh, now it's more about negotiation. And I find it hard sometimes to transition from being really, really accommodating as a parent to having my own needs. Because I know that if I don't have any of my own needs, I'm not teaching her the truth. Like I'm, I'm hiding something from her, which is I have needs sometimes not to play some kitty cat game for the 20th time in a row after having done it for two hours. Like the 21st time, I just, I don't want to. Now, yeah. and that's okay. if, I, if I hide that, yeah, if I hide that from her, I'm giving her a pretty narcissistic sense of other people, you know, here, come my peons, entertain me. And, you know, I must command <laughs> you with all of my bottomless needs and you must only entertain me and have no needs of it. Like that's not, that's Doesn't not really right reconcile with liberty. No, and, and it, or the basic philosophical virtue called honesty, which is I'm yeah. bored. You know? Like you don't say that, oh, I'm sorry, I know you're only six months old and you, you know, still pooping your elbow, but uh, I'm bored of doing – you can't do that when they're six months old because they're six months old, right? So I get that. But now there's a point where to have my own needs is important and to have my own needs can, be, can open things up for her that she wouldn't otherwise have done. And trying to explain to her you know, that, that kids like, seeing, like doing the same thing over and over again – uh, adults, not so much. Uh, there's a bit of a difference and so on. So I find that making that transition from being a really accommodating parent to an infant uh, to being a more negotiating and honest um, parent of a toddler uh, can be a challenge. And it always feels like, well, I, if I was a really good parent, I should want to play that 21st kitty game for <laughs> two hours and 10 minutes and then realizing that that actually is not a very healthy thing to be doing. Uh, it suppresses myself, it suppresses negotiation, and it doesn't open up the other possibilities of what we could do uh, if she's not running the show in that entitled way. So, so I think that to me is something where, you know, as a parent, at least for me, in life as a whole, there are the shoulds and then there's the honesty, right? And, and the shoulds and the honesty sometimes are not in sync. Sometimes they are, and that's great. Sometimes they're not. And so I feel, well, I should, uh, you know, want to play with my daughter all day. Well, I'm really bored. And so the shoulds and the honesty, I find that negotiation is really a very interesting 
uh, phase at the moment, I do find it really surprising that she's, I mean, she's going to, if, if she was awake when we did this show, like after we finished the show, she would want to know what everyone said. You know, oh, well, what did Lorette say? Oh, and what did you say about that? And what did she say? Oh, Daddy, tell me all about your show. When I do the Sunday show, she wants to know everybody's, you know, edit a little bit and all that. And I was really not expecting that from a four-year-old, you know, that the level of interest in the world and in other people and questions and problems. And, you know, she's completely fascinated by Bible stories at the moment. And so we're telling her all the Bible stories. I mean, I know them. I was a choir boy. And so from all that stuff, um, uh, there's so much that's surprising. There's so much that's more rapid than what... I remember because when I was a kid, I was, you know, I was in, no, nobody really negotiated with me. It was very, you know, it's the old fashioned top down kind of hierarchical stuff. And so seeing what's possible with children who are negotiated with is blowing my mind. And it's, it's bittersweet because, of course, you want to give things to your kids that you didn't get, but you can't help remember that you didn't get them in the very act of giving them. I wish it was a little bit more uncluttered positive. I hope she'll have that with her kids. But every time I give her something I didn't get, it's a little bit bittersweet sometimes. And I wish it was a little bit less spicy, so to speak. Uh, so those are just a few of the thoughts that I've had recently about, uh, about parenting. Well, it sounds like you've got it down. You're, you're good to go. <laughs> now, well, until you know, tomorrow. Everything that it's, it's resonating with me, and I'm, I'm glad that you're talking about it so honestly, because I think that's, that's necessary. I just did a Peaceful Parenting podcast with uh, Stephen, um, Stephen Colbert. I wish. <laughs> James Corbett. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a Freudian slip, I think, but James Corbett. And he's just great. Uh, I, I really enjoy talking to him. I think he puts out really great information. And when I was invited to talk about peaceful parenting with him, I said, well, first of all, I don't really refer to myself as a peaceful parent. And it, he didn't react this way, but I know other people react this way when they say, well, you know, Lorette, tell me about peaceful parenting. And I said, well, what makes you think I'm the one to talk about this? I'm, when did I ever say I'm a peaceful parent or I'm a peaceful parenting expert? And the reaction to that is always like, oh, you, so you spank? And it's just like, no, I, I didn't say that either. Like, why are we existing in this false dichotomy? But uh, I have an aversion to things. As soon as we call something a thing, it has it has the tendency to become this whole little uh, universe. Uh, I'm sorry, exclusive club. And you, well, now sorry, it has a dog. I know you're on a roll, but I just wanted to mention that, I, you know, a philosophical parenting, peaceful parenting, whatever you want to call it. It's sort of like saying, well, I'm a I'm a non-wife beating husband. And it's right. like, why do we even need to say that? I mean, exactly. well, can I just be a good husband? Like, I'm, I'm just, I try to be a good parent. Now, of course, being a good parent means not hitting your children. Like, exactly. yeah, I'm a good, I'm a good husband, except that I hit my wife when, when she doesn't do things that I want. You know, other than that, I'm, you know, so the fa very fact that we have to refer to peaceful parenting rather than parenting just shows you how early it is in the whole. Anyway, anyway, just want to go, it, it go is, on. I just want to. I get it. And I, I, I'm forgiving of it and I understand it. And I accept that other people use the term, but I personally don't like to identify with that. Just like I don't really like to call myself a, a homeschooler. Because, I, you know, it always sets up the alternative as the norm. So, well, I'm a peaceful parent. Oh, so that means that being a violent parent is normal. So I'm setting myself, you know, outside of that. And that's it. You, it sounds ridiculous, but there is that false dichotomy that really exists because we live in a culture that, that trains us for that uh, false dichotomy. So I don't consider myself a peaceful parent. That automatically means I spank. It's like, no, that, uh, it. it's like Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. Like if you're not into nonviolent communication, what does that mean? Like I breathe fire on people, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I'm talking exactly. to them. Daggers come out of my mouth. Like, I mean, it's a bit of a setup. Anyway, so I want to mention. Exactly. 
exactly. Well, that's exactly it. And it's exactly why I don't consider myself an unschooler either. But when I describe my day and how we go about our lives, a lot of people will say, well, that's kind of like unschoolish. And I say, yeah, but what do I have to call it that? Why can't I just call it? We don't go to school. I don't call myself an unwalmarter because I don't go to Walmart. Like the whole thing just doesn't make any sense to me. And it's very tragic because I think the concept It's like uh, introducing yourself, say, hi, I'm Stefan Molyneux. I'm, I'm un-Arabic. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm not sure that exactly. helps me very much. Exactly. Or, hi, how are you? I'm not Desiree. Okay. I was, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, kind of thinking that you were. So it, the whole thing right. is really is really just born of this kind of uh, really black and white society. And I, I do realize that things always have a balance and a counterbalance, but we don't exist in one extreme or the other. We always exist on, along that continuum, and we, we move back and forth along that continuum depending upon who we are, depending upon our circumstances in life, depending upon our relationship with each other and our children. And that changes, and we grow, and we go along with it, and we learn as we go. So I think what happens is, though, it, it is dangerous. And a lot of people will say, well, why don't you just leave it alone? I can't leave it alone because I'm seeing what's happening. And as a parent, I am in the parenting world. And as a parent that doesn't go to school, I'm in the non-schooling parenting world. And a lot of it is is now classified as alternative, which that term annoys me too because it sets up the what I believe to be the violent society as the norm. So us peaceful people are the alternative, of course. But I see what goes on, and I'm I'm in the throes of a, I'm in the circles, and I'm watching new parents come on board or coming to the alternative parenting or peaceful parenting realm or the. Uh, home education realm, and they're asking questions and they're saying, well, I don't, I'm really new to this because I've been living mainstream all my life, but I don't want to raise my kids this way. So what do I do? I need help. And they're told, well, you have to do this, 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 and this. And if you don't do that, then you're doing it wrong and something's wrong with you. And you're, you're, you know, we just can't have you here. And moms are worse. Dads are really good about it. And, you know, I hate to have that double standard, but it's true. It's what I've witnessed. Men are a lot more patient about this and a lot more logical. Women are just like, Meow, and kind of catty about it. And, you know, they see you doing something different as a personal insult. And it's really bizarre. And I'm thinking, what has happened to our culture? What has happened to society when people would just have a baby and turn to their own community and say, okay, can you help me learn how to nurse my child? Oh, suddenly we have to have clubs and pay monthly dues to go to the Lesh League so other strange women that we don't know could teach us how to breastfeed our child. It used to be that we had a child and the people that were closest to us that had intimate relationships with us helped us. Something went crazy along the lines. But then at the same time, we could always look at those tribal societies and say, okay, but they were still abusive and they, some of them were maybe hitting their kids and, and doing things that our, our society is evolving past and, and growing out of. So when I, I talk about parenting being an imperfect thing and an ongoing thing and I ask people what they've learned and what their advice is, or when, I, when somebody asks me and they say, well, how, how could you do this or how could you do that? There is no answer. There is no standard answer. Well, you have to do this and you have to do that. I think the only thing we can do is try to avoid being violent. Other than that, we have to just pay attention because every kid, every relationship, every dynamic, every family is different. And as long as we're not beating them to death, then we're probably doing okay as long as it's not violent because then it's not really a parenting thing. Then it's a human thing. It's just a matter of hurting another human being. That's not really communicating, is it? That's just violence. So, you know... I have a feeling I'm going somewhere with this, and 
I apologize. But no, you know what it, you it's know like what I'm getting it is. on sort of a rant because I I I want to kind of draw out from you, and, and I did I think successfully draw out from you what your personal perspective was and how your perspective has changed. And it just seems like you by saying, "I haven't got it yet," you've got it. No, no, absolutely. And to me, what whatever arises in the absence of aggression is almost by definition a beautiful thing, right? So like in the Middle Ages, you had to do the job that your dad had. You know, like if he was a, um, I don't know, a smith, you had to be a smith or whatever. And, and you were bought and sold with the land. And if that was your land, then you had to farm that land. And that was like, because it was all coercive. It was all aggressive. And then when we had some choice about what we wanted to do with our lives, people made good choices. They made bad choices. You know, some people are like, you know, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to, you know, save up some money and I'm going to buy a house. And maybe that was the right thing for them. Other people are like, oh, you know, I think I'll go pick grapes in Queensland and backpack around for 10 years. And then they get to the middle age saying, oh, man, what was I thinking? <laughs> I've got nothing. I want to start a family and I got to live in a, a gremlin, uh, not even the car, like an actual gremlin. Anyway, and but but to me, whatever arises in the absence of aggression is almost by definition beautiful. And so for me, if, if people are parenting with more negotiation or less negotiation, or, to me, it's like as long as you're not using aggression with your kids, I really – it's like as long as you're not going out and stealing with your money, stealing your money, I in really in a way don't care how you earn a living. Yeah. I mean I may have a few thoughts here and there, but as long as you're not stealing, uh, then, you know, it's like you know, if you're not raping – Maybe you shouldn't have a lot of casual sex. Maybe you should. I don't know. But as long as you're not raping, it really doesn't matter fundamentally. I mean, there may be wiser or less wise things to do. But as long as you're not actually using – so with parenting for me, I mean, we all compare our children to other children. And that's a healthy thing to do, of course, right? We want to see where they are in development and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've seen other children like when I take my daughter to sort of local play groups or whatever, other children her age, you know, sitting quietly and playing and this and that. My daughter is – not uh, one of those one of those people. And the other night, she was she made a little nest in her in her bedroom because a friend of ours was visiting uh, up from the states and staying with us. And my daughter made a little nest, and I got up a couple of times in the night, and um, she was like literally in a different corner of the room every time. That's how gymnastically she sleeps. I mean, she's that active, and she always has been ever since she was in the womb. She was like basically trying to get to my wife's elbow half the time from the womb or something like that. And so should, you know, and uh, we all know this. I was listening to Girl Writes What the other day talking about her daughter who was just a real hellion, I mean, apparently, you know, like a real t- uh, tomboy, hellion, not a bad thing, just really rambunctious, really aggressive, um, not, not aggressive like violent, but just aggressive, like really wants to go and do stuff much more so than her sons are. And to me, it's like, okay, as long as you're not aggressing against your children, however you deal with their personalities is a beautiful thing in a way. Because whatever happens is going to come out of a place of peace and negotiation in the same way as long as you're not forced at gunpoint to go work in some concentration camp, almost by definition, anything that you do with your life is an infinite improvement because even at least you get to make your own mistakes, uh, so to speak, if they're going to be mistakes. So I hope that makes some kind of sense. It does. There is a very clearly defined definition of violence. And inflicting violence on another person or inflicting harm on another person or using force or coercion uh, or, the, or the threat of violence to manipulate somebody is definitely we, – we can all – I think most of us, we can agree that that is harmful. 
That is harmful not only to children, though. That's harmful to your wife or your neighbor or your friend or your lover. That's harmful to anybody. That's not communication. What we what we want to do is is foster communication. And that is really what the parent relationship comes down to, because it's exactly the same as any other relationship with the added responsibility that we have been on this earth longer and hopefully we have more wisdom than our children and we can kind of help them make decisions, not necessarily make decisions for them, but help them make decisions. There are, of course, times, though, that we do have to make decisions for them and it depends upon who they are. It depends upon their age. It depends upon what's going on with them. The situation, every situation is is very, very different. So I, I think it, it's, it's really just about recognizing that. And there is an distinction, I think, what happens is people say uh, terms like peaceful or parenting, and they just get this image in their head, or uh, new parents feel like, well, I want to be a peaceful parent, I I don't want to be an aggressive parent, I don't want to be a violent parent, I don't want to spank, whether it's because they were spanked themselves, or maybe they weren't, and they want to continue in that vein, and they say, I I don't want to be that kind of parent, I want to be a peaceful parent, so they think that, you know, you have to adapt this kind of Buddhist quality and be like, well, hmm and meditate every day and yeah exactly and just always have this kind of own personality so if i say that well no i don't i don't i don't punish my kids i don't spank my kids we don't do timeouts we don't do chore charts we don't do any of that stuff and someone will say oh gosh you know i never pegged you as a peaceful parent and i'm like you see, the thing is, Stefan, I'm not ohm. I'm, that's not my personality. I grew up in the concrete jungle in Brooklyn, New York. I am a tough girl. That's who I am. But it doesn't mean I'm not a peaceful person. So I think that it's important that we start to broaden our intellectual horizons a little bit and really understand the perspective there. Just because I'm a loud, in-your-face kind of person does not mean that I'm a violent person. My relationship with my children and our dynamic, my family dynamic, is all about communication. It's all about relationships. Do I say no sometimes? Of course. Do I say yes a lot? Yes. But you know what? I really don't have to say yes a lot because there aren't, it's, my children don't ask me permission to live. That was different when they were two or three years old. Of course. And as they grow older, everything's different. There's always a relationship dynamic there. And I think it's important that we start to forgive ourselves a little bit because going back to the whole grain of sand perspective and the whole reaching out perspective, we have such precious little time. So what are we going to do with that time? Now, to make that even more important, our relationship with our children is even more limited. Well, the time is more limited because our children are only children for a very limited amount of time. At some point, they're going to become their own person and they're going to leave the nest of the home and the safety of the home and they're going to have their own lives without us. And of course, we'll be involved in their lives to some degree, but you get what I'm saying. So are they going to spend oh, yeah. that time, like I always say, inside of a school building where they're getting abused and they're, they're you know, subject to kind of force and, and coercion, in some cases, even physical violence? Or are you going to have a relationship? with your children during that time. And I I think that it's very important that we start to realize this. And as we do, maybe more and more people will make these decisions and we will evolve to a better culture. Now, I want to talk about that evolution a little bit. Humanity, in a lot of ways, is evolving and we are getting better and we are uh, sort of embracing freedom and coming together and realizing that uh, time is short and life is precious and our relationships are precious. In a lot of ways, I feel like we're moving backwards, especially when, when I see what's going on and I focus on corruption and NSA and everything else. I, I think that we're moving backwards, but in some ways we're moving forward to a 
utopia. Now, there's the word. I want to ask you about utopia. I've heard this word used a lot. Uh, I've heard it used a lot in anarchist circles, of course, um, sometimes in libertarian circles, and everybody's after the same goal, utopia. We want utopia. What is utopia, Stefan? Describe that to me. What, what does that mean? How do we define utopia? And more importantly, why is that the goal? For yeah, I mean, well, first of all, yeah, first of all, what people usually mean when they say utopia, what they usually mean is, I can't think of a good reason to dismiss your argument, so I'm going to pretend it's implausible. You know, that, 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 <laughs> that's the best that they, you know, a world without slavery, well, that's just utopian thinking, that's just utopia, and, and I mean, so people will say the word well, utopia yeah. is just a way of... I, I think it is, but I, can you define it? Can you define what utopia is? Yeah, u- utopia. I mean, to me, utopia is um, uh, is um, is a society where we accept a few basic premises and live and let live beyond that. I mean, it's not it's not a mad otherworldly. Like Thomas More wrote a book, I think, in the 16th century called Utopia, where people had given up using money and there was some communist. I mean, it was really just a. I read this book when I was in my early teens, and I was like, well, that's some that's some crazy stuff, man. I mean, that's really deranged. Although he had some good stuff to say about education. But to me, utopia will be achieved when we just kind of say, let's respect property rights, stop using force against each other, and live and let live after that. That, that. that doesn't seem to me to be utopia. That just seems to me to be like, okay, let's listen to the stuff they told us in kindergarten or told us when we were first learning how to play with other kids, and let's just make a world that's, that respects that. Let's, let's make a world where the adults are expected to respect what we ask five-year-olds to respect. You know, don't hit, don't push, don't grab. Well, that's all. This is the, if, if that's utopia for adults, then it's insane to ask five-year-olds to do it, right? I mean, that's completely mad then. You know, it, so if it's, it, it can't be what we expect from five-year-olds, but completely impossible utopia for adults. So that's all I'm, I mean, I don't want to tell other people how to live their life. I just want them to not drag me into their crazy coercive fantasies of statism and laws and controls and regulations and bullying and jail and prisons and courts and all that kind of stuff. Just if we just took seriously for six months or so, just took seriously the rules that we inflicted on your average five-year-old and decided to live by them as adults, that to me would be utopia. And if that's impossible, let's stop inflicting it on five-year-olds because that's just cruel. That's just saying, well, you can't be a five-year-old unless you have a PhD in astrophysics. It's ridiculous. So if we're going to impose it on five-year-olds, let's at least respect it among rational adults in society and let's stop using the state and the power of coercion and law to force everyone to do everything that you think is right. So I don't think that's utopia because we expect it from five-year-olds. How can it be impossible for adults? But um, there is, of course, that weird mental breakdown that people have when they say well okay i lecture five-year-olds about that don't push don't grab don't don't steal um but then we can't run society like that it's like well if you're asking five-year-olds to run their society can't 40-year-olds run their society like that no that's totally different anyway so utopia to me is something very simple and very easy uh the only block is not because it's complicated because again we say it to five-year-olds like they should understand it and that they we hold them morally responsible for pushing and grabbing and kicking and then we say, well, yes, but I'm going to go lobby the government to get some special break or some you know, ban on some goods that I don't want to Im- compete with in the importing of. Or uh, I think that so-and-so is doing a bad thing, so I, should, you know, that I don't like that piece of vegetation going into their lungs. So I'm going to throw them in jail for 10 years or whatever. We just have this complete disconnect between the rules that we inflict on five-year-olds and the standards we 
uh, hold ourselves to as adults. And um, it's not utopia at all. It's the most common sense, basic thing. If a five-year-old can get it, surely the rest of us can find our way to understanding it at the, the level at least that a five-year-old. We don't say to a five-year-old, well, you shouldn't take his toy unless your daddy and mommy make less money than his daddy and mommy. And then you should take his toy because that's called the redistribution of income. Or you don't say, well, you shouldn't pull that girl's panties down unless you and a bunch of other kids all get together and vote and you're in the majority. And then you can go ahead and do it. No, we give these rules to children as simple, basic, moral absolutes. But then when we become adults, we get all kinds of freaky and and Mobius strip, other dimensional weird thinking where suddenly these rules don't apply. And all I'm basically saying, and it's an embarrassing thing to be saying, is let's listen to what we tell five-year-olds and try to live in that way as adults. That's, I don't think that's utopia. I think that's, you know, that's like saying it's utopian for adults not to crap their own pants twice a day. Yeah, well, it's certainly basic common sense, and what you're saying is is very sensible because we do we do give children these these absolutes. You don't hit other kids, period. You just don't. There is no reason to ever hit another five. You know, you're two five year olds in a room and you're fighting, and we tell them no, you don't do that. We don't tell them well, you can do it if you really want him to do things your way. Then you can hit him. Then that's okay. Or you know, you can you can hurt other people. I I get what you're saying, and it makes a lot of sense, but. I, I don't know if that should really be defined as utopia, like you said, or just basic common sense. And you know, maybe we just haven't evolved because too many of us aren't really seeing it. But I, I guess the answer to that would but be basic common sense is so that we are at, where we are as a species. Lorette is that basic not, common sense is the most utopian thing of all. It's the most but utopian we, thing of all to just expect some basic common sense and for adults to hold themselves it. to the same moral standards they apply to children. I mean, that's, we, this is how deranged we are as a species. That's utopian thinking. We expect, we expect common sense. And you and I are talking about it and we're in agreement that this is just basic human courtesy and common sense. And there probably are, uh, I don't know, thousands of people listening to this, to this recording or, or watching this video thinking, well, yeah, of course, it's just basic common sense. But that's on an individual basis. As a society, we don't seem to be applying those, those principles as much well, as we might agree you know, with like, them. We're not applying them. And is, I mean, whose fault is that? Is that the state's fault? I mean, well, I'm, I mean, not, the, I'm not a fan of the, the state. The, the, Believe the, the state me, has I'm the become, furthest but the, person. But. Yeah, but the state has become the parents. This is why, you know, the reason that, that we can't question the state is that there's always been this honor thy mother and thy father thing throughout all religions, particularly in the Judeo-Christian slash Islamic religions. This, it's one of the Ten Commandments. And we, you know, we, we've, we've given up the necessity to not covet our neighbor's ass or whatever the other ones are. But, um, and we've certainly found lots of ways around thou shalt not kill, you know, unless a guy in a green hat tells you to and gives you some money. But um, uh, the state has fundamentally displaced parenting in that the, our children spend more time with government employees than they do with their own parents, much more time. And if you count homework uh, and all the things that the parents have to do outside of being parents in order to satisfy the state's insatiable demand for taxation and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. It's got to be at least, at least five to ten to one times more uh, time with government employees in the form of teachers than they do with their own parents. And we have this thing as a species where we, do, we have a great deal of difficulty applying morally consistent rules up the hierarchy. Like we have a huge amount. One of the major things that I'm doing as a parent is to continually remind my daughter that I am as fallible as anybody else and I will make mistakes and I will make predictions and they turn out to be incorrect. And I continually remind her 
oh, so you said this and I said that. Who was right? I was daddy. And who was wrong? You were daddy. Exactly. Because the most important thing, if you really want to make the world a better place, in my opinion, the, the most important thing is to teach your children to apply consistent rules and skepticism all the way up the hierarchy. We are so fundamentally developed or, or um, I don't exactly, we have evolved, I guess you could say, as a species where um, uh, moral rules come from the top down and the top is always excluded. Right, So the moral rules come from the top down and the people at the top are always excluded, which is why you see genuinely insane things like a mother hitting her son saying don't hit. Like that is – I mean your head like – you know, it explodes when you see that kind of stuff. And that only appears not insane to people because that's how we've evolved and that's how we survived as, you know, bully, tribal, mystical But it does appear insane. That that's the conundrum is that most rational, intelligent people will say, yeah, that's insane. And anybody no, that they doesn't won't. agree with no. that isn't listening to our show anyway. No, so no. Listen, you, you know, you know, you know these statistics as well as I do. Two thirds of mom are still hitting their 60 year olds and under three and or more times I a week. I did say intelligent, it's not insane to them. people. We are not well, all okay, intelligent, sure, right. rational people. <laughs> That's right. And, and somewhere, you know, a mile under the ground is a giant nugget of gold. That doesn't mean I'm ever going to find it. That's rare. But anyway, <laughs> so, so we are so constituted that we sit like we, whoever, we, whoever raises us, we cannot apply consistent moral rules up the ladder. I mean, it, it, it literally is like for us, it is like trying to will water to go up a rope. It, it, it's not the way the physics of our tribalism works. And because the state is the one who raises our kids for the most part. I mean, the majority of Canadian kids are in daycare uh, and then they go from, you know, they go from um, uh, infant care to, to, to daycare to pre-K to kindergarten to government schools. I mean, they, they get far more time with uh, government than they do with parents. And as a result, because we are fundamentally, it's so hard for our brains to process applying consistent moral rules up the hierarchy and we we uh, imprint on whoever raises us, we do not grow up with the capacity to apply consistent moral rules to our government because our government is raising us. And, and, and that's the, the great weakness of our species is moral rules come down hypocritically and never go back up. Because, you know, I mean, people who questioned the witch doctors and the Attila the Huns uh, and tried to apply the same moral rules that were, they just got killed. I mean, this is yeah. weeded out of the population. It's just weird freaks like maybe you and me who have some weird genetic throwback to some other kind of consistency. But uh, if, it's impossible to understand why people say, well, I'm willing to hand over my secrets to the NSA. Uh, I'm willing to trust the government when, they say, when the FBI says, oh, yeah, we use drones to spy on people domestically. But, uh, and we don't have a program in to really protect anyone. But trust me, we use it very, uh, with great discretion. Uh, you know, that, that the government lies and denies. And then when they're finally outed, they say, well, it's true. But, you know, we've had really great success in containing. I mean, the, the only reason that this is even remotely seems sane to people is that we imprint on whoever raises us. And we have an unbelievable difficulty applying the moral rules that were inflicted upon us up the ladder. And this is why the government gets away with so much. We're conditioned. We're conditioned yeah, by we're conditioned. a it's genetic, state it's to the accept thing. the state yeah. as the authority. 
I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. We're conditioned and we're institutionalized and we're trained by the state to accept the state as the authority. But even more so than that is we're encouraged throughout our lives to become part of the state and to allow ourselves to become absorbed into that structure. Because when you think about it, this what is the state? The state is, is just a word that we say, but the government consists of individual human beings operating as a collective and then training other people as a collective. So those individual human beings at some point in their lives are making a decision to become absorbed into part of that system and become the authority because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a yeah. hunger for power. And it's this, this quest for power because uh, we're going back to the perspective again. It's a warped perspective of life. It's it's a warped sense of reality, a warped sense of time, thinking that uh, all of life and, and some kind of reward is going to come on from high after we they, they accept their mortality, but they think that after they die, they're going to get some kind of reward if they do these things in life. And a lot of that has to do with the power that they have on earth. And we saw this in, in Egypt even. They figured that the power they had on earth would follow them into the afterlife and they would be even more powerful in the afterlife if they were powerful on earth. So it's like this just basic human psychosis that a lot of us mm. suffer from and continue to suffer from that actually produces the entities like the state. And then it's the, the minority people like you, you and me that have some kind of genetic dysfunction, I guess, or whatever it is that just <laughs> continuously the, uh, question genes. it. And yeah, exactly. Rebel against it. We are the mute memes that evolve so, the species. I mean, so like here's, here's a tiny, tiny example of, of what I mean by let's apply the rules to children to adults. So when I was, I'm trying to remember five or six years old, you know, I was learning how to read and this and that. And, and we would learn words and then um, I would be tested on them, right? And say, so, well, do you know how to spell this word? And it wasn't enough for me to just say, yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually had to show uh, my teachers that I knew how to write that word. You know? And this happens all the way through our education. We, we can, don't just tell me you can do it. Show me proof that you can do it. I don't care what you say. Uh, don't tell me you understand this math. Show me your work. Isn't that what they always used to say? You know, yeah. show me your work. Show me that you actually did it. Now, we have this <laughs> mad lunatic Obama in power who's, you know, more or less in charge of pretty major economic policies and decisions and so on. And he, he believes that he knows how to, like, create jobs and how jobs are created in the economy and so on, right? Now, that's a little more important than whether a five- or six-year-old knows how to spell the word cat, I would say. Kind of important. But the basic reality, of course, is that Obama has never created a single job in his entire life. I mean, he hasn't, he's not an entrepreneur. He's not a business owner. He's not uh, gone out and raised capital. He, he doesn't understand anything to do with the economy. He went from, um, you know, being a student to being a grad student to being uh, a pseudo professor. I mean, who knows what the hell was really going on. But, and then he went, you know, basically straight into being a community organizer and then went straight into the what was it, the Illinois Senate, and then when basically after two yeah. terms there, he ran for... So all he's saying is, I know how to create jobs. I know how to get this economy going. I know how to blah, 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 right? And I wasn't allowed to get away with saying, I know how to spell the word cat without proving it, mm -hmm. without actually showing that I knew how to spell the word when I was five. But we'll put this narcissistic lunatic in charge of an entire economy and without testing whether he actually knows how to create, because we can't take those standards we apply to five-year-olds and apply them anywhere else. Well, because the five-year-old is also trained. If the five-year-old turns around to the teacher and says, well, you spell it. How do I know that you know how to spell cat? 
that's not acceptable. The teacher would punish the child and send the child to the principal's office because that's simply not but at acceptable. Least the, at least the at least the parent, w- I'm sorry, at least the teacher would know how to spell the word cat. I mean, maybe not in some inner cities, but, but he would know. <laughs> she would know. But, the re- but, but if the, no, if like the way it would, the, the more thing would be like, okay, so the, the teacher says to the, the grade seven kid, uh, you shouldn't use violence to get what you want. That's called bullying, right? And then they say, well, don't you force my parents to pay for your salary, whether we like the school or not, or whether I attend or not, or whether they even have children or not. Isn't that using violence to get what you want? That I think would be like trying to move the moral standards up the rope. Uh, which again, I mean, that's incomprehensible. When I was 15, I was still a socialist, and I was uh, I was running a campaign to to increase teachers' benefits and salaries. I mean, I was running a save the teachers campaign. I mean, it was lunatic because it would never have even crossed my mind. It, it wasn't like I thought about it and thought, well, no, that would be a bad thing to say. Like it, the it, what is even unthought is the most intractable delusions of all because it's it's not even. You know, it's not like you and I say, well, listen, uh, let's not do this through webcams. Let's just crawl through the computers and then just do it in each other's living room. and have Because it's not possible, right? It's not physically. Mm-hmm. So we don't think about that. We don't discuss it as an option. And moving moral standards up the hierarchy to even the, roughly the same amount of absolutism as they come there down the hierarchy, it's not something that people consider and reject. It's not even something that people consider. It's not even within the realm of possibility or something that you could even conceive of. Well, the few of us that do consider it, here's the thing, and everything that you're saying is is interesting and I agree, but here's the thing, Stefan, those of us that do consider it and do challenge it are often punished. And I, I mean, some people might be listening to this and think, well, you're equivocating uh, a five-year-old having to spell the word cat with the complications of, of politics and, you know, all the dynamics that the complexities that go into running a society, but it really is, if, when you strip down the complex, complexities and you, you really just look at it for what it is, we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about, like you said, just the, the moral hierarchy going up the rope instead of down the rope. And when you do have that child that is that the teacher demands, well, show me, prove to me that you can spell this word. And the child looks at the teacher and says, well, you prove to me that you can spell the word. Of course, we're assuming that the teacher can spell the word, but that's not the point. That's irrelevant. What we're talking about is the child demanding the same proof of the teacher. That child's going to get punished, whereas the teacher's not going to get punished for demanding that the child do it. So right from the early stages, we're trained as a society not to question. I can remember being a teenager, and I'm a rebellious person, and much like you're a rebellious person, and and so many of us are, but unfortunately, I think we're the minority right now. I think a lot of people flap their lips about being rebellious, but they're really not, because when it comes down to it, they get in line like everybody else. It's all about walking the talk and, and talking the walk. But I could remember being a teenager and questioning some of the ideas that my teachers were were teaching me. One in particular, I was in a science class and there was this mandatory part of the science semester where we had to learn about uh, reproduction. It was sexual education and it was part of uh, biology. So in, I think it was probably sophomore year, I think uh, I was in 10th grade. And part of the biology class for a few weeks had to be dedicated to human reproduction. And I remember the teacher saying something, um, he was teaching how a woman gets pregnant and she can only get pregnant during this time and, you know, you have your your cycles and everything else. And I said, well, isn't it possible, even if it's uh, remote, isn't it possible for a woman to get pregnant right before or after her cycle? I mean, what you're teaching right now is you're telling a room full of teenagers that it's okay to fornicate if we just had our period because we won't get pregnant. And that's not necessarily true. 
I was 15. I knew things. And kind of and important. Yeah. Exactly. It's kind of important because, I mean, we're in an, we're in an inner city school. I mean, we're, we're kind of all doing it anyway. And you're telling us all that it's A-OK and everything's going to be just fine if we do it either during or right after our menstruation cycle. And that's, that's probably not a good idea because it is possible. It's not common, but it's possible. And uh, he argued with me and we went back and forth and I was simply for asking that question and, and calling it out and demanding that he reconcile what he was saying with, with facts, I was removed from the class and I was punished and I was given detention and so on and so forth. And of course I bucked that too and I skipped out, but that's not the point. The point is that when I did demand that he reconcile what he was saying with some kind of proof or, or show some kind of proof uh, and validate what he was teaching a room full of students because I felt that it was really not a good idea. I was punished for that. So that's the society that we're living in. We, we may, as human beings, try to do that. We may try to look at the police officer when they pull us over and say, what gives you the authority to tell me how fast I can drive my car? But many of us won't do that because as children, we were trained not to do that or we will get in trouble. And what we see happening is like in the case of, of Adam Kokesh, he's trying to question authority and what are they doing? They're trying to make an example out of him. It's very sad. So it, it almost like circles back, Stefan, if you'll, and, and indulge me for a second to the whole, well, you know what? We're all going to die anyway. What the hell's the difference? I just want to shut my computer, go have a glass of wine, have sex with my husband, play with my kids and call it a day, you know? And I, I do feel like I get to that point sometimes is I see these things and I'm just like, man, you know, even if people do change their mind, it all ends anyway. What the hell's the difference? Is there a reward for me in an afterlife that I would have to subscribe to a religion and I would run my whole life based on, on waiting for that? And has that worked out for society? Has that really worked out for humanity? Like running our lives based on religious beliefs? No. So we're, we're back to square one where we're saying, fuck it, what's the difference? Ooh, I, oh, God. <laughs> the first time I ever first like that in recording. I, uh, I'm very glad to have fished one of those good Anglo-Saxon words right out of your throat. That's very nice too. That's good. That's kind of fine for my audience. I don't, I don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, don't worry about that. Too, so it's fine. If, if, if the most offensive thing that we've been talking about, abuses of power and, and peaceful parents, if the most offensive thing people get is one expostulation from you, they really need to readjust their moral compass. <laughs> uh, so no, that's fine with me. No, it, it is. Um, I, I don't know. I Honestly, I don't know and I can't make a good case for people as to why uh, why be good. I mean, I, I can't. I can't. It, it is sometimes it feels like a blessing. Sometimes it feels like a curse. I mean, sometimes I wish that. Yeah. Well, no, but I mean, just basic consistency with what we tell five year olds to do. That to me is, you know, that's basic consistency with what we tell five year olds to do is is at least a good place to start, or at least stop telling five year olds that. You know, let's do one or the other. If we're not going to believe it ourselves, let's stop inflicting it on five year olds. That's like having a religion. That's like having a religion that's only. It's like it's like basically saying to to, to five year olds, ethics are Santa Claus. No adults believe in them, but we're going to inflict them on you uh, as a real thing. It's just nonsense. But. It is um, and here's something else complicated to offer to the table, and this takes us back to the the, the whole bizarre parenting teaching thing that, that that's going on, and the dom dogmatic parenting is, is what I'm calling it lately. Is dogmatic parenting? And this real example. This is a true story. Uh, this is all playing out on Facebook, right? And I'm not actually witnessing it, but 
Um, somebody actually took screenshots and sent me the screenshots because that that's how to make drama, right? Is to send screenshots. Like any of us think we're private with the NSA. Anyway, so this is all playing out in real time. Mother doesn't know what to do because her son, I, I, 10 or 11 years old, I think, wants to do some activity that involves, I think, fire or some kind of dangerous concoction of chemicals. And she's not comfortable with it. And she's not comfortable with her own ability to make it a safe environment. She's not sure how to handle this. Now, in my mind, the first bell that goes off is like, really? You really need advice for this? Like, what? What happened? But anyway, so where does she come to for advice? Facebook, because this is where we want our parenting advice, right? So we go to Facebook and she gets into this parenting group on Facebook and she says, well, my son wants to do this and this activity and I'm not sure how to do it. And I'm thinking, wow, okay, this should be a no-brainer, right? No, there's hundreds of comments and all these people just going on and, and saying all this stuff and chipping their gums and most of it because it was a peaceful parenting uh, forum, well, you have to kind of just let him do what he wants and you have to make sure that his needs are met. And I'm thinking, well, where? That is a strange word. Let's make sure that the needs are met. There's a difference between needs and wants. So first of all, that distinction got blurred. Yeah, right I think he, he may have a need to have all 10 fingers at some point exactly. in the future as well. There, that might be something useful for him to stay as well. alive. You know, that's that's a need maybe, but he wants to do this activity. He doesn't need to do that that activity. So all the advice is about trying to find some way to compensate this child and give him exactly what he wants and and still do it in a safe environment. And it comes down to, well, okay, I'm going to ask, I'm going to call my husband and ask him to come home because he could do it with him. So she somehow convinces her husband to leave work, the job that he's getting paid to do, and come home and cater to this child. Now, if that doesn't teach narcissism, I don't know what does. But this isn't, I haven't gotten to the, to the, to the finale yet. She's having this conversation in real time. And I think what is going on is she's probably using some other, some device or something like that, hopefully not sitting in front of her computer, but she's saying, I don't know how to handle him. I don't know how to communicate with him. He's flipping out. And then a couple of comments later, he's cursing at me now. A couple of comments later, I'm about to curse again, so cover your ears if you don't want to hear it. A couple of comments later, and this is, quote, he just called me a motherfucker and threw shoes at me. I don't know what to do. Wow. And nobody's saying... Get off the fucking computer. Go talk to your kid. Go relate to your child and and see how you can deal with this situation. Oh. Oh, and one of the best advice was you have to just let him run run the gamut of his emotions. You have to let him express himself. Oh, and no. Have no, 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 no. Abuse is not abuse is not acceptable. Yeah, so abuse is not acceptable. Oh, but this is peaceful parenting. This is peaceful parenting, Stefan. This we have to make sure that the children's needs are met. My child has a need if, to punch no, no, me no, no, no. If, throw a shoe at me. If, uh-uh. the, if the if the peaceful parenting had been pursued, there's no way a child would be calling his mom a motherfucker. Of course. There's just it's not possible. It's not but there's something way back that went way awry. In the first thing that went wrong was I'm going to get on the computer and figure out how to do this and ask strangers that don't even know me instead of just having a conversation with your child about it. And I can imagine that this has been going on for 10 years of this kid's life and that's why he's in the condition that he's in. So how does this kid then grow up and learn not to hit his children? Well, and, and how about not treating your children like they're grenades about to go off and take out half the house with them? You know, that's a way to make children terrified of their own emotions, to feel incredibly dangerous and volatile and to feel incredibly frustrated that that's how they're viewed and perceived. 
uh, you know, oh, I have to be really careful with Johnny because he can go off at any time. And, just, you know, yeah. and it's like, oh, my God, well, that means we can't negotiate because you view me as some sort of kryptonite or some sort of gelignite or something. like. And anyway, so, so therefore they are but, a time bomb. Yeah, for sure. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy if ever there was one. Well, I mean, here, well, here's listen, the problem. Listen. We have you half a society in school being being trained to accept authority and, you know, another portion of society that's doing this other bizarre thing. So you think that, okay, well, maybe we we just need this, this one rule that everybody has to abide by, but that's not freedom either. So let's just call it a day and have a glass of wine and go to bed, right? Well, listen, let's, let's – uh, I think it's a really, really great – I think we should try and make the case because it's an interesting question. I think about this. I'm constantly making the case to you know be good and and do the right thing and all that kind of stuff. But I think maybe when we do our next show, we'll we'll pick up on that because I think that's an interesting. I'd have a good answer for that. I, I really should. I think. <laughs> but, uh, you know, since I have been working on selling it for low these many years, but uh, I think maybe we can pick that up on our next show because I think that's a really interesting question. Because there are times it feels like a blessing, sometimes it feels like a curse. But I think uh, I need to mull that over a little bit more in my own head first before I can do anything useful. But All right, let's but hey, I, I really thought it was a great show. I really really enjoyed. Uh, it's great to to connect again. And yeah. um, uh, I love going I over all the these questions with you. Yeah, no, I, I guess the glass of wine and your husband sound like they're in for a fantastic night. Uh, so, <laughs> so good for you guys. Yeah, I, I, I got a theme um, going tonight. Yeah, and listen, I'll be back traveling again in the fall, and maybe if I'm anywhere in close, we'll do a face to face, which would be lovely, and uh, introduce our kids, which I think would also be lovely. And uh, thanks again for all the work that you do, of course, in bringing all this stuff out to people. Uh, it is, it is a challenge, and sometimes it does feel like trying to haul a kicking bison up a glass wall, but uh, I think it is the most necessary thing we can be doing, and I'll try and think of a good reason why for the next time we do a show together. Yeah, you know, let's do that. Let's plan for something, and if you do travel in the fall, I'm going to be in Texas in October, so if you're anywhere near there, then we can meet up, and of course, I'm always in Oklahoma. Uh, before you go, I, I really seriously doubt that there's anyone listening that doesn't already know who you are, but just in case, in that off chance, uh, let's, let's mm. hear how we can learn more about you and find out about your work, Stefan. Well, hopefully nobody gives much of a rat's butt about me, but hopefully the philosophy that I talk about is of interest to people. But uh, it's uh, freedomainradio.com. People can go to YouTube and subscribe at youtube.com forward slash freedomainradio. And um, there's, yeah, podcasts. There's tons of books uh, for free on the website. Real-time relationships is more about interpersonal stuff, and there's books on ethics and all that kind of stuff. It's all free. Uh, I really encourage people to just go and, you know, face plant in the buffet of philosophy we call Freedom Main Radio and don't come up for air. You know, develop gills while swimming through that buffet to mix my metaphors atrociously and for my listeners to uh, to get your uh, are you still unpluggedmom.com unpluggedmom yeah I, I just embraced that I have been associated with unpluggedmom and uh, I'm branded and that's okay I'm, I'm just going to embrace that and go with it unpluggedmom.com or lorettelin.com I'm doing the podcast and you know they're recorded now and we're going to do some other stuff I have don't do drugs stay out of school is of course still available and I have another book coming yep. out in the fall so Fantastic. Well, it was great chatting with you again, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. I will actually be in Texas in October with Steph Kinsella and Jeffrey Tucker for a symposium, so I'm sure we'll find some way to have at least have a flyby. So uh, yeah. thanks again, Lorette. Great yeah. to chat with you again. All the best. And Stefan, we do care about you, and I care about you, and I'm very happy to see that you're doing well, and I, I do wish you all the best, too. Thank you very much. Take care. You have a great night, my friend. Bye-bye.